Uh, So reading from James chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Why don't I pray and ask for God's help? Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is truth and that in it that you teach us, you rebuke us, you correct us, you train us in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Father, would you do that to us today as we listen to your word tonight. Amen. Uh, When I was a kid, I used to watch this program called Mr Squiggle. Now, along with Art Attack, Mr. Squiggle was probably the high point of all 90s kids' shows. Now, uh, he was this puppet who looked like a bit of a cross between a giraffe and Pinocchio, uh, but he had this pencil for his nose. And in every episode, Mr. Squiggle would draw a picture using his nose, but he would draw his picture upside down. And in each episode... Part of the fun was to try and crack the code of all the lines and squiggles before he revealed his picture by turning it the right way round. Now tonight, we're looking at James 1, 1 to 18. It's the first talk in our holiday series, and it's written by the Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, to Christians who are spread all the way around the Roman Empire. And after reading our passage just then, we might feel the same way as watching Mr. Squiggle draw before he turns his picture the right way round. There seems to be lines and squiggles that don't connect. I mean, did James just say to consider trials as pure joy? And what's the deal with verse 6? And why does he talk about temptation? That seems to appear out of nowhere. But all these lines and squiggles actually form a bigger picture 
of trials designed to turn our perspective the right way round. Because our world sees trials very differently, doesn't it? Life is about the good life, and a good life is one free from trials. At best, our world sees trials as an inconvenience to be overcome, or at worst, an evil that we do not deserve. And the danger is, we can absorb the world's view on trials without even realising it. How do you see trials? Do you fear them? Or do you avoid them? Or do you resent them? Because tonight, my aim is to try and change our perspective on trials so that it's in line with God's word. And it's going to be challenging. Because what James chapter 1 says about trials collides head on with the world's view on trials. And as we feel this brunt of this head-on collision, my hope and prayer is that our perspectives change so that we see trials in light of eternity as God's good and perfect gift to us. So we're going to look at three truths about trials in James 1, 1 to 18. Firstly, the product of trials. Then the, sec- uh, then the promise in trials. And then finally, the peril of trials. So uh, firstly, the product of trials. Why does James want us to see trials as pure joy? Well, it's because trials produce Christian maturity. Uh, Why don't you look at verses 3 to 4 with me? Consider it pure joy when you face trials because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. When we uh, persevere in trial, it trains us, it grows us to become Christians who are mature and complete, not lacking anything. And this is the goal of the Christian life. The goal isn't just to make it to heaven, it's to become mature, to be people who have clothed themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ through and through, to be people who have put on the t-shirt of compassion, the jumper of kindness the boots of humility, the gloves of gentleness and patience, people who have put on the genes of forgiveness because we've been forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ. But more importantly, to be people who put on the jacket of love which binds all these things together in perfect unity. And when we see Christians clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ through and through, it's attractive, isn't it? When we see older saints who have clothed themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ their whole lives, we just want to be like them, don't we? And one of the things that I notice about older saints is how thankful that they are. At Unichurch many years ago, we had this older saint called Ken Frewer, some of you might remember. He's with the Lord Jesus now, but if you ever met him... He was always bursting with thankfulness for all God had done, checking in to see how you were going, and if you didn't have one, sneak you an Anglican prayer book from the St. Matt's Church building. Thankfulness is one of the hallmarks of the mature. 
But to become mature, we need trials. To grow, we need our faith tested. And sometimes we just want to become mature with as little trial as possible. But that's impossible. The Hollywood actor uh, playing the superhero movie, uh, so the superhero in a Marvel movie, must train hard to develop muscle growth. They can't get ripped by just sitting on the couch. They need to go to the gym and they have to work out. It's sweaty work. And in the same way, we need trial to grow in maturity. Growing in maturity is spiritually sweaty work. Trial flexes our faith muscles. It burns off the fat of trusting in ourselves and it strengthens our reliance on our Heavenly Father. And it makes us dig deeper into God's Word. Truths we might have glanced over in quiet times become living, breathing realities, growing our trust in our Heavenly Father even more. And this is all because trials test our faith. And that's exactly what trials do, don't they? Trials always test our trust in the true and living God. The sudden death of a friend or family member. The unexpected diagnosis of cancer or some other illness. The episode of chronic depression and anxiety. The hurt inflicted by relationships breaking down. The damage caused by someone else's evil. All these trials, they flip our world upside down, bringing us into a period of uncertainty. And unlike planning to go to the gym, you can't plan for trial. You can't schedule it into your diary. Because trials, by nature, are unexpected. They're caused by factors outside our control. Only God knows when he will lead us into trial... And when when trials come, they suck us into a vortex of emotions, thoughts and feelings. We ride the roller coaster of ups and downs. And maybe our mental chatter gets filled with questions like, why is God letting this happen? Does he even care? Even, is trusting God worth it? And maybe that's you. Maybe you're here tonight in a moment of trial thinking and feeling these things. And that's okay. What James says is to consider trials as pure joy. He's not discounting the difficulty and pain in trials. No, he's asking us to consider, to think about trials in a certain way of seeing the overall purpose in trial, which is to make us mature, to move from being spiritual babies to spiritual adults, to get us ready for eternity where we'll be like Jesus, mature and complete, not lacking anything. And this is such a great comfort because it means our trials are not for nothing. In fact, trials are kind of God's tick of approval because he's saying, you're ready to take this on. 
because I can grow you to trust me even more. And friends, in trial, we can cry out to God. After all, he's the one who decides when to give us our circumstances. And so this means that we can cry out to him even when it's hard. And we see this all the way through the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. When we're in trial, we can resonate with David as he cries out to God in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can resonate with Asaph when he cries out to God in Psalm 77, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? C.H. Spurgeon, the, uh, the great Puritan preacher, said that he learned to kiss the wave which threw him upon the rock of ages. And friends, in trial, we can do that too. We can cry out to God for help in prayer. As we read his word, we too can learn to kiss the wave which throws us on God, the rock of ages. But I imagine for many of us, we're at a stage of life where we haven't been touched by trial. Life is pretty good. We're still at school or at uni. We're in relative peak health and energy. We don't have too much responsibility. And so in this time of stability, get your perceptions right about trials. Get it the right way round. And see trials as essential in producing maturity. And it's like a vaccine. Inoculate yourselves with the truth that trials mature us because sooner or later trials will absolutely come. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted and that's God's promise for his people that trials are guaranteed. And when we've calibrated our perception of trials according to God's word and when we hit trials We'll be thankful to God because we know that he'll use it no matter how hard and awful the trial is to grow us to be like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we could even pray the crazy prayer of asking God to give us trials. Would you dare pray that prayer? Because trials produce Christian maturity. But trials are uncertain times, which brings us to a second truth. The promise in trials is wisdom. Uh, Have a look at verse 5 with me. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. In trials, God doesn't leave us in the dark. God promises to give us wisdom when we ask for him, when we ask him. Now, the wisdom promised here isn't uh, life hacks or cleverness. The wisdom from God means knowing how to live God's way in God's world. It means knowing how to live in sync with the world God has made. So verse 5 means God promises to show us how to live his way in our time of trial. He'll give us certain guidance in uncertain times. Which is exactly what we need in trial, isn't it? 
When the, when the mist of trials descends and you can only see your hands in front of you, you need guidance. And God promises to give it when we ask it. But there's the conundrum of verse 6. It's a worrying condition, isn't it? Because it says God will only give wisdom if you believe and not doubt. But which Christian hasn't experienced doubt in some point in time? I know I have. So does verse 6 mean then, if I'm not fully confident that I'll receive wisdom when I ask God for wisdom, then then he won't give me anything. I won't receive anything at all. No, that's not what verse 6 is saying. Verse 6 doesn't mean I have to work myself up into an absolute state of belief in order to receive wisdom. Because in the scriptures, doubting means more than just questioning whether something is true. Doubting means failing to entrust yourself to God. It's when your loyalties are split between the ways of the world and the ways of God. You see, doubting is when I'm betting both ways. It's when I'm listening to God's wisdom, but keeping an eye on the world's wisdom, just in case God's wisdom wasn't to my preference. I don't really believe God's way is always the best way, and so I'll try and get the best of both worlds. It's kind of like clicking interested on Facebook. You know, you you don't really trust the event to be that good if you click interested on Facebook. You're kind of hedging your bets. And the doubter is double-minded in verse 8, or literally split-souled. You see, the problem with trying to bet both ways is God's wisdom and the world's wisdom, they they lead you in totally opposite directions. That's why the one who doubts is unstable. Because they've built on two foundations. Some on the rock of God, the rest on sinking sand. And God isn't mocked. If I'm doubting, betting both ways, then God won't give me wisdom. Because chances are, I wouldn't follow his wisdom anyway. But for those who genuinely entrust themselves to God, God gives us wisdom when we ask him for it. And more often than not, God's wisdom will come through reading his word. Because that's where God reveals himself. They are our manufacturer's specifications for us. Which means we'll be crazy not to know God's word. We need to read it deeply to chew on its truths over and over again. Because reading God's word is how we know God and how we know how to live his way in the world he has made. And so in trials, God doesn't leave us in the dark. But he promises to give wisdom when we ask for it, giving us certainty in a time of uncertainty. But make no mistake, there is peril in trials, which is the final truth we'll look at tonight. 
It might feel like James is shifting gears when he moves from talking about trial to talking about temptation in verses 13 to 18. But James isn't. The peril in trials is temptation. You see, when trials presents this opportunity for us to grow in maturity, it also presents this opportunity for us to be tempted. Verse uh, 13 doesn't start with, if you're tempted. It starts with, when you're tempted. James assumes temptation will be a normal feature of the Christian life, no matter how long you've been a Christian for. And especially in trial, temptation can be intense. Because when things are hard, our reflex is to shift the blame for our sin. And trials tend to push us into self-preservation mode, where we justify everything because of our circumstances. We can deceive ourselves into blaming God for our temptation, thinking thoughts like, God is the one who made me like this, or he is the one who gave me this weakness, or he is the one who put me in this situation. But friends, this is dangerous. Because if you follow these, those thoughts through, it will lead you to throwing in the towel with God altogether. And so James shows us the cold, hard facts. The facts about us and the facts about God. Uh, look at verses 13 to 14. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The fact is, you and I are sinful. Yes, God gives us our trials. But he doesn't give us our temptations. Our temptations can never come from God because he is only good. But more than that, verse 17 says God only gives good and perfect gifts. If you're not sure, look at Jesus. God has given us the best gift of all. When we trust in Jesus, verse 18, we are born to the children of God. Verse 12, we have the promise of the crown of life, which is given to us, which will be given to us when Jesus returns. God only gives good and perfect gifts. He never gives duds. No, our temptations come from us. Because we're sinful, our desires entice us into sin. Verse 14 uses the language of a hunt, of a predator luring its prey into the open so it can be killed. Like those predators who make themselves attractive so its prey offers itself up for the taking. That's what our desires do to us. Our desires might seem attractive at first, but they're deadly. And verse 15 tells us exactly where our desires will lead us. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Our desires will lead us to death. As we nurture desire in our hearts and minds, it eventually affects our actions. Then sin is born, and if we continue to feed sin, it grows, taking on a life of its own. And then we're surprised how hard it is to resist sin. So we keep doing it. And in the end, 
sin will kill us. Sometimes we like to think we need to get sin out of our system, that if we just give a little, we'll release the pressure and then temptation will go away. How wrong that lie is. The more we feed desire, the more we sin. The more we feed sin, eventually we'll give birth to death. We need to fight sin tooth and nail rather than nurture it. And it all starts with desire. We need to keep our desires in check, taking preemptive strikes against our sin. And the best way to do this is to fight our desires with the truths of God's word. There is a reason why the psalmist says in Psalm 119 verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Because when we know God's word, we can recall its truth in times of temptation. And a great way to hide God's words in our hearts is to commit some to memory. Start with some of your favourite verses. If you don't have any, start with Hebrews 7, 24 to 25. It says, But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. It's one of my favourites. So let's bring this to a close. James has shown us three truths about trials. He's shown us that trials produce maturity. They are God's way of giving us a spiritual workout to flex our faith muscles and grow in our reliance and dependence upon him. And we've seen that God doesn't leave us in the dark. God's promise in trials is his wisdom. So we'll have certainty in a time of uncertainty. But there's the peril of temptation in trials. And so we need to take preemptive strikes against sin, keeping our desires in check by fighting them with the truths of God's word. But how do these truths work together? Let me finish by telling you the story of an older saint, Bronwyn. Bronwyn was suddenly diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in December of 2009. She was a busy mother with a husband and four kids. Her cancer was widespread, and so she was given three to six months to live. However, God, in his kindness, extended her life for another two and a half years. In June 2012, a few months before she died, Bronwyn wrote an open letter which was published online. I'm going to read uh, some excerpts from her letter because it's clear she had her perspective on trials the right way round. She saw trials as producing maturity. She held onto the promise of wisdom in uncertain times. She saw trials as God's good and perfect gift for his people. And ultimately, she saw trials in light of eternity. Here's what she says. I thank God for the gift of cancer. I don't like being in pain. 
and I don't like having terminal pancreatic cancer. I would like to grow old with my husband and see my kids grow up. But God appears to have a better plan. I know that he is faithful. His plans are the best and do not revolve around me. Acts 13.36 says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. When God has done what he wants through me, I will die in his perfect timing. Why has God given me cancer? Maybe it is to make me repent of my wrongs and turn to Jesus. It has certainly done this. Maybe it's to make me talk more to my friends and family about Jesus. It has certainly done this. Maybe it is for reasons way beyond my understanding. It is certainly at least this. All I know is that God has given me this gift of cancer to use for his glory. We pray daily for the cancer to miraculously go away. But if God chooses to say no, we can trust him nonetheless. It is still hard to really grasp that I am only here for a very little while. But, as the Bible teaches, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the fields. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. 1 Peter 1.24 As the cancer keeps spreading through my body, I'm very aware that Jesus is my Lord and Saviour in whom I can depend and that all other ground is sinking sand. I am so grateful to God for everything. I am thankful for who God is, his majesty, his splendour and his promises. I am thankful for my family, friends and life. I am so thankful to God for the resurrection of Jesus, which means I will have victory over death and don't need to fear pain or the dying process. It is such a comfort to read. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. She goes on. Another challenge is not knowing. It is impossible to plan. Last year I had five hospital admissions. I have no idea what condition I'll be in in six weeks, let alone whether I will even be alive. However, I am just so thankful for God's guidance in the Bible. The Bible is so clear about what God wants me to do now, even as I get sicker. Be joyful always. Pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 God is so clear. This is what God wants me to do now, to thank him. And so I thank God for this gift of cancer, because he is good and he is using it for his purposes. The plans of the Lord are perfect, even if I don't know the reasons for everything. All I know is that soon I'll be with the Lord forever because Jesus has saved me through his death and resurrection. I hope to see you all there.
Bronwyn. Bronwyn saw trial the right way around, didn't she? She saw trials as God's way of making her mature and complete, of making her someone beautifully clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ through and through. Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for trials, that in your wisdom and in your good timing, that you give them to us to mature us. And so, Father, would you continue this work in us? Would you mature us by your Spirit so that we might clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ through and through, like Bronwyn did? Father, please give us a perspective of trials which sees them in light of eternity as part of your good purposes and plans for us. And we ask this for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen.